Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And we have, as ever, got lots to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with you, I will in a moment reflect on um, Keir Starmer, who's had a busy time of it recently, uh, by doing a bit of contextualization. Context being one of our favourite words, isn't it, On uh, in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Then over to some brilliant questions. But first, again, if it's okay with all of you, a couple of very quick announcements. Uh, first of all, don't forget, Rock and Roll Politics Live at the Old Market Theatre in Brighton this coming Monday, the Christmas special, Monday, December the 12th, it will be. Um, And yeah, first time there. And tickets are on sale on their website, few left. And I'll put it on the link to this podcast. Yeah, get down there for some festive fun in the year, which we need to make sense of. Four prime ministers. Is it four? No, three. Let's not get out of hand. Four chancellors, five education secretaries, and of course, a look ahead to next year. And uh, there's going to be a brilliant prediction that we're all going to have to make. Yeah, all sorts of things. And it's a lovely theatre, apparently. It's my first time there. And nice bar and stuff. So we'll have some festive fun at the Old Market Theatre on December the 12th. The other thing is thank you for subscribing to Patreon, those of you who do. The bonus podcast, uh, the last in this series of almighty calamitous cock-ups pegged to the quasi-quateng budget. Do you remember quasi-quateng? He was chancellor a few weeks ago. And the last one of this series is the Suez Crisis, which was just extraordinary more intense than Iraq in so many ways. And then in January, a new series is going to start. I'm really, you know, I sound like a DJ, you know, about to do a live tour. I'm so excited about this live tour. And I'm really excited about this new series on Patreon. So do tune in. I'm going to tell you the theme uh, next week for that. But anyway, I've just come, I don't know whether any of you managed to watch it, uh, from watching uh, Keir Starmer and Gordon Brown give their news conference stroke set of announcements around constitutional reform. They did it in Leeds. Inevitably, the hall was not as full as it should have been because trains were cancelled from London to Leeds at peak time. For those of you who didn't hear last week's podcast, do tune in because... I refer to the state of the trains uh, in that uh, podcast. A lot has happened since then, hasn't there? Sajid Javid announcing he's going. That's the other theme from last week. Uh, In fact, I was thinking of doing a sequel. Like, Do you remember the Electoral Reform sequel? Like Jaws 2. I was thinking of doing a sequel to all the themes of last week because they um, continued to develop uh, in recent days. But then I thought, there's so much other stuff we can reflect on in our time together. And some of your questions also refer to this, which we're coming to shortly. But anyway, I thought uh, uh, it was very interesting watching the press conference on lots of different levels. I thought Keir Starmer was very authoritative. It's really interesting what a poll lead does to a leader's confidence. Uh, It's easy to forget, although I never do, to be honest, uh, that politicians are human beings. And when you're behind in the polls, it is a massive kind of uh, hit to anyone's self-confidence. 
because it feels partly like a personal rejection. And when you're ahead in the polls, it gives you a huge boost. And it shows, politics is human to the point where it shows when people feel they're doing well and when they're not, you can just see it. Anyway, he was uh, authoritative in command of the detail. I thought he dealt with the questions well. And it was very interesting, the questions. And this shows what you have to do in opposition and how you have to be patient with the media. Because for a lot of um, time recently, one of the criticisms about Starmer and Labour was, where's the policy detail? You know, oh God, we've, they've been in opposition now since 2019. Where's the detail? Here is a document crammed with detailed proposals put together by Gordon Brown and others. The questioning was along the lines of, Who's interested in all this detail? You know, there's a cost of living crisis. Isn't this a sort of uh, kind of elitist exercise? When actually it's all about finding new ways of generating growth through um, the devolution of power. So it's highly relevant. There were detailed policies in it. And then you get attacked for having detailed policies. So that was um, something you just have to deal with in opposition. It was interesting seeing Gordon Brown. He looked uh, very relaxed with Keir Starmer. It's so funny because I was thinking when um, he was shadow chancellor and Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party in opposition, and they quite often did joint events together. And uh, Gordon couldn't hide his irritation, verging on annoyance verging on anger when whoever was chairing their joint event said and now our next prime minister tony blair because he gordon growling on his chair but uh, he was the one who said several times i want and expect keir starmer to be the next prime minister they obviously get on well and incidentally that's quite a skill that starmer has shown there dealing with these former prime ministers making the most of them without letting them be too interventionist uh, and backseat driving is a skill. It's one that many leaders have not had to acquire because former prime ministers were either old or there weren't many of them around. But now they become prime minister at such a young age, leaders have to deal with former prime ministers. Rishi Sunak's going to find that tricky as well with certain former prime ministers. There are some radical propositions um and the abolition of the house of lords has attracted a lot of attention um i would just say a couple of things about that kissam was cleverly evasive about timing uh over the house of lords reforms said they were going to consult now so they don't consult afterwards uh, once they're in government which is fine except for this I suspect what he means by consulting is the focus groups and one or two other tests of opinion rather than a sort of detailed policy debate because you can't really have them in opposition at this stage. Um, you can't have a kind of uh, row about these things. And so I think that's what will be tested. And it is possible that the focus groups will say, oh, God, who's, I'm not bothered by the House of Lords reform. And, that, you know, you can, I can hear the focus group now. And then focus groups do tend to have a right of veto in Keir Starmer's office. So who knows what will happen? But the document as a whole uh, is radical and gives them space strategically 
to represent change when they're going to have to be cautious on the economy and deadly cautious on anti-growth things like Brexit. It's very interesting. I'm uh, writing a book at the moment on turning points in modern Britain since 1945. And they cover three elections which triggered uh, turning points. You can guess which ones they are, 1945, 1979. And I've just been looking at 1997. And it is, I think, the new Labour. I mean, I think Kisama has been too influenced by that period. As I've said many times, we're in a different world now to 94 to 97. But that new Labour project did have insights which I think do apply to this very day. It's around what you can say as a Labour leadership on tax and spend specifically, and then using constitutional reform to generate excitement, which you can't do with the tax and spend debate in the British media. So this is, while I was kind of researching what happened post-97, I came across the announcement they made about Sure Start, which was one of the most um, radical and life-enhancing policies that government introduced. And I had a vague thought that well, they'd probably wait until the second term. You know, it was quite expensive. They weren't trusted to spend a halfpenny when they were leading up to 97. But it was, it was launched in 1999 with quite a lot of money attached to it. Um, 500 million at first, over 500 million. And then I look back at what they actually said in the election, you know, those five early pledges. And um, it was was so tiny and incremental. Smaller classroom sizes for seven, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, relatively small first steps to improving the NHS and things like that. The five early pledges did not emphatically include half a billion quid on sure start. And the reason for that uh, has absolute uh, application now, I think. Uh, in the way that some of the other insights of that period just don't, because we're in a different world now. And that is, uh, it helps Labour in the build-up to an election, I'm afraid, to play this tax-and-spend debate as the media demands, which is you do have to have a kind of a way of explaining how you're going to pay for each initiative you are making, and therefore the initiatives you are pledging have to be relatively small. Um, And so, for example, if in 1997, one of the five early pledges was half a billion quid on sure start, you can hear now, you know, the Today programme or Andrew Neil, so you've got a half a billion pound black hole. How are you going to pay for that? Uh, Will you put up income tax to pay for it? Or which tax will you put up to pay for this half billion? Oh, you're going to borrow, but the markets will not trust you if you borrow, you know. Now, it's all a fantasy world and a deeply destructive one. Uh, Because what happens is the economy grew and um, you get all kinds of windfalls in the treasury if you're lucky. And Labour did actually, one or two. They they sold off uh, some telecom line i can't remember the details now got loads of money which they actually used to pay off debt to re, you know stabilize the markets and so on um but as i say if they had promised that on that scale in 97 it wouldn't have helped labor 
it would have become a problem for them because of this tax and spend game. Now, it's different for the Conservatives. When Cameron uh, pledged to uh, pre the crash of 2008 to spend the proceeds of growth on tax cuts and public spending, it was seen as brilliant by the media. Oh, yeah, he's a moderniser. He's going to put some on public spending as well as tax cuts. You know, oh, yeah. There was none of this. But won't you have a black hole? This faint, this black hole, Arthur Carney on the stage. Oh, but you'll still have a black hole with it. You know, none of that. You can see it with December 2019 when uh, John McDonnell, who in many ways was a very interesting and thoughtful shadow chancellor uh, against the kind of caricature, uh, but he kept on putting in more pledges, you know, oh, halfway through the election, we'll give you free broadband as well, and then we'll do this. It had the opposite of helping because of this tax and spend game. But as I said, when they had got through the barrier of the game and won the election in 97, reassured the markets, which you have to do because... Labour governments have endured two devaluations. The 45 government had to devalue with market and kind of hovering over them. And the Labour government, having won a landslide in 66, had to. It, it, it is paralysing. Uh, and again, in terms of confidence and what you can do. So once you've calmed them down, then I think the lesson of that era is that you then begin to have the space to be able to do things you can't promise to do in the mad tax and spend media game uh, that is played. And Sure Start is a really interesting example. So it, I bet Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves will go into the next election more or less saying the same as New Labour did in 97. And it will frustrate all of us because of um, our awareness of the dire state of public services and they're aware too i think you know when people say oh what is keir starmer for what you know i think from the few conversations i've had with him it is a sense that if a labor government can improve public services and generate economic growth partly through the improvement of those services that would be a massive massive goal you know the other thing is about the frankly the poverty of ambition in uh, amongst voters um they have been so conditioned to accepting these crap public services and just you know being told that any alternative is just profligate or that um you know uh, uh, this wand called reform can sort the whole thing out this conjurer's wand i don't think it even works for a lot of them to hear in advance of an election that they could have uh, a health service as good as uh, equivalent countries in Europe and elsewhere, or trains that run on time. They are so conditioned to assume that this country must remain run down, that there are problems in promising uh, you know, more. But that Labour government, although constrained in many ways, too constrained, did find the space to deliver in ways that went way beyond what they actually said in the election. Now we come to the dangers of uh, that approach, which is that, um, you know, like New Labour, uh, constitutional change becomes a much bigger focus 
of a pre-election project because it avoids the tax and spend debate, doesn't cost money. And devolution is easy to talk about in opposition because it's not about what you would do, it's almost the opposite. It's about giving power to others to decide what to do. And, and it sort of works. And there are many detailed proposals being unveiled by Keir Starmer and uh, Gordon Brown. But there is always a problem in government. It's almost the opposite of the tax and spend thing, where it becomes easier to invest in public services once you've won. Uh, with constitutional reform, it's the opposite. It, if you frame the arguments carefully and think them through, it can withstand the scrutiny of an election campaign. But then doing it is really difficult because one of the questions Keir Starmer was asked about in Leeds was, again, this question about what's all this to do with you know the current cost of living crisis? And he says it's all about generating growth. Of course, he's absolutely right about that. That is, in the end, how you do it. And he did a brilliant riff on the um, frustration of being asked what your kind of long-term plans are. And then, being t- you know, the next question, well, that, we're not interested in that. We want to hear what you're going to do in the next six months. Then they announce a policy for the next six months, like the energy bill intervention or the uh, one-off windfall tax on energy companies. And then you say, but then, we're not interested in that. We want to know what your long-term plan, you know, you, you, you can't win. But in explaining it, he said it's not just about devolution of power, it's about a devolution of resources. And in theory, that uh, sounds very attractive. In practice, governments have always had problems with this. Because um, if you devolve resources uh, from the centre, you are, to some extent, accountable for those resources. But you have no power as to how those resources are being used because you've given the power to somebody else. And in that dynamic, there are many, many complexities. To go back to the New Labour era, Tony Blair in opposition, I went to some conference where he was speaking to local government leaders. And he said to them a line which sums up this dilemma in practice. It's a very ambiguous line. We will give you more power. This is Tony Blair speaking to council leaders. We will give you more power as long as you use that power responsibly. Who decides what is the responsible use of that power? And that ambiguous dance remained in place throughout the whole New Labour era. And they were very cautious at first about, say, one of the, I think the one of the most important innovations, the introduction of the London mayor. And it was only because Ken Livingstone performed so well in his first term and was popular as well as being radical that uh, they gave the mayoral structure more power. That is a very complex dance in practice when you're in government, not least in the Treasury, uh, wanting to show that every halfpenny is being well spent uh, if you lose control over how some of those halfpennies are being spent. On the House of Lords... If you don't do it very early on, it won't happen. And here you see, this is where the new Labour... Tony Blair talks all the time about boldness and radicalism. He was very cautious as a prime minister and a leader. And the House of Lords was a classic example. You know, so they were pledged to get rid of the hereditary peers, but ended up doing something... I mean, it was still a big leap, (laughs) you know, given that this was such an anachronism. They ended up... uh, It was a sort of Monty Python thing... Uh, uh, the abolition of hereditary bills, brackets, except for some of them, 
built and some of them remained in place and you now have a city election where if a hereditary peer dies, you know, all this kind of stuff. And of course, the House of Lords went unreformed. Uh, Robin Cook, when he was leader of the House, big commission uh, on the reform of the House of Lords. Um, when Nick Clegg was Prime Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, it was one of his passions. Nothing happened. The instinct towards paralysis deepens if there is delay. So if, uh, I can tell you now what will happen, if there's a firm commitment to uh, abolish the House of Lords and put in a democratically elected second chamber with a different but clear remit from the Commons, and for it to happen uh, without further consultation in the first term, that's in the manifesto, it will happen. If it is, um, we plan at some point to address the issue of the House of Lords, which is an anachronism in a democracy and we pro propose to review the ways in which we make use of regional and local representatives in the form of a second chamber. If it is evasive in terms of timing and detail, it won't happen. I'll just make that observation, it won't happen. In government, these things become really tricky and difficult unless you're absolutely focused and uh, ready to do it. That new Labour first term again, a huge change. Scottish Parliament, Welsh Assembly, Northern Ireland Assembly. The peace process was hugely helped by the fact that devolution was wider than Northern Ireland, or else it would have appeared anachronistic and contorted to have a Northern Ireland Assembly. But in the context of a Welsh Assembly and a Scottish Parliament, it really did work. But remember, we've talked about it in those electoral reform specials. There was a referendum pledge on electoral reform, didn't happen became too difficult in government, brilliantly helpful in opposition to convey change, to work closely with the Lib Dems and all this kind of stuff, not in government. So, you know, I think constitutional reform is much harder uh, in government and easier in opposition. Tax and spend is almost impossible in opposition if you're Labour, but becomes easier in government if you have kind of reassured these bloody mighty markets and all the all the rest of it um and these are kind of a lessons brexit is the one that kind of stands out in a way uh oh yeah and the green deal thing i mean you know i andrew neil on his last channel four interview show i don't know if any of you saw it how are you gonna pay for this blah 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 yeah, 28 billion you're planning to borrow and all the rest of it um, is an example of how difficult these things can be in opposition. But you do, in an election campaign, it's difficult with the tax and spend fantasy world that uh, the, the media imposes on the electorate at an election time. You do offer, have to offer hope somewhere in all of this. And it can't just be constitutional reform, uh, <laughs> you know, because uh, a lot of people, although they would benefit from it, won't be excited by it. So it is important to find space for something like that. Uh, um, remember, New Labour had a minimum wage, welfare to work and all the rest of it. I mean, there were policies to excite within that sort of tax and spend trap that they had to avoid. Brexit is tricky. Britain is so unsuited to this role outside the European Union, not just the Northern Ireland question, but it's so benefited from the single market. And as why Thatcher devised it, I think she had a sense that the economic recovery that she was presiding over was quite fragile 
you know, a lot of manufacturing closing down, high unemployment financed by North Sea Oil. But to get Britain into the single market with a strong financial sector in the city was a way of kind of boosting the economy. And it is wholly unsuited for this isolation where you sort of where there are chronic labour shortages without any obvious short term solution. It's it's all fine saying train British workers to do these jobs. Well, yeah, great. But what about the next two or three years at the very least? And and anyway, on it goes. But it is bloody tricky because there has been a referendum. If you start talking about the single market, there will be no exploration of the issue in the Daily Mail and the Sun and the Telegraph and so on. It will be Starmer betrays the people yet again kind of thing. So it is really difficult. But what I would say on that one, I mean, he's he, he's learning probably too many lessons, but some fruitful lessons from the 97 era. But it's very interesting how um, Harold Wilson uh, dealt with uh, Europe then, because Europe's always a problem in British politics, a huge, I mean, it provides many economic opportunities, but has been a huge political problem. And when Britain joined in 73, Wilson... Uh, for reasons largely of party management, opposed membership. And uh, most Labour supporters and members were opposed at the time. But he was clever. He left the door open uh, for a Labour government to keep Britain in. in. So he kept on saying, we oppose the Tory terms of Britain joining the common market. So it wasn't just we oppose Britain joining the common market. We oppose joining the common market on these terms. You know, I'm sure there is more space for Keir Starmer to say that the Johnson-Lord Frosty Frost deal was a disaster. That doesn't insult Brexit voters. Uh, The insult to Brexit voters was the Lord Frosty Frost negotiation. Who in Europe now, in the European Union, wants to leave saying look at what lord frosty frost negotiated for britain with his union jack socks intimidating all us lot in the european union we want the same please no country indeed those who flirted with leaving are now not going anywhere near it after lord frosty frost negotiation i think there is more space there which kind of works to starmer's advantage but this is um the art of opposition. It is really, really tricky. And there are lessons from 97. It's not a universal set of lessons because each election is unique. And boy, the next one, with all the problems Britain has, far, far greater than in 97. Although public services were pretty close to being on their knees then, let us not forget. So it's difficult. But um, I, I thought he was, uh, yeah, very confident and authoritative you know the media have been wanting meat here is some meat so i think in government some of it will be very thorny and gordon brown who was interesting he's you know he's framing it uh as he has always done in ways that are quite compelling uh i don't know whether it'll work in scotland but this thing about from now on the debate is not independence versus the status quo uh but change for Scotland that will help Scotland versus change via independence that will harm Scotland. You know, those famous, these framings are quite important and quite potent. Anyway, there are a few thoughts. And now over 
to you and your questions. And for those of you wondering, by the way, if you're just joined us and many we have many new listeners each week, oh yeah, on that front, be great to get more and more subscribers. So first of all, if you are listening, please do subscribe because then you get the podcast automatically downloaded like you know when newspapers used to be delivered to our doorsteps and we used to run down excitedly to get to get the newspaper each morning well now if you subscribe rock and roll politics will just arrive on your phone or what however you listen uh, as if delivered by a newspaper boy or girl or person it's great to so do that. And if you could do, spread the word and tell your mates, oh, yeah, yeah, listen and subscribe, uh, then our cooperative becomes bigger. And the way to email to be part of the cooperative, making points, questions, uh, steverick14 at iCloud.com. Now, I got, it was unbelievable last week when I was talking about, just for those of you who haven't listened to last week's, I began by talking about how crap the trains are and why the fractured railway system. Disaster. It's got to be brought back together again. But not complacently, but with an absolute rigid focus on delivering for the passengers. That's the key. Then I moved on to the number of MPs leaving in the House of Commons, and said since then, uh, Javid has announced he's going, comparing it with the previous era, really, you know, like post-79, when all those Labour politicians had lost, but they all stayed on when some of them could have made a fortune. And then I went on to Matt Hancock in the jungle and uh, said, given the current culture of indifference to orthodox politics, but a fascination with these kind of celebrity shows on his terms he made the right call to go into the jungle uh, because you know he's going to get endless media opportunities now he'll be on the after dinner speech circuit for which uh, Boris Johnson earns 200 grand a time so it kind of works for him anyway a lot of you kind of thought this were this was terrible what I was saying but I don't think I framed it very well because it wasn't a sort of per se defense of Matt Hancock the politician it was a comment on our political and media culture as of now, which is <laughs> to be in the jungle. Um, it, it probably helps a figure's profile and the way he or she is perceived uh, than orthodox politics, where politicians are treated with contempt or indifferent. Anyway, a lot of you, I've got a lot of people on Twitter say, oh, Steve, you know, what, what are you going on about and all this kind of thing. And here's one from uh, Brian Hunt. I was staggered and disappointed to hear your well done Matt comments regarding his decision to appear on a reality show. Yes, he'll benefit enormously financially whilst continuing to draw an MP's salary, and it will do wonders for his public image. Well, that, see, Brian, that's kind of what I was referring to. Things which you seem to admire. No, it's not about admiring Brian. Anyway, then Brian goes on to say, but what about his decision during the COVID lockdown, arguably causing the deaths of thousands of people discharged into care homes, also then resigning because of his personal conduct and breaking of the rules? Yeah, absolutely right that he should be held to account for everything that happened to him as an elected politician. And on the uh, being caught with his 
girlfriend. Um, he resigned. I mean, I think he did try to hang on. Uh, in his diaries, he kind of gives the impression that it was inevitable uh, that he was going to go. But um, it took a couple of days. Uh, but he did go. So he was held to account for that. And they should be held to account. All I'm saying is, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, uh, Brian, at all. On his terms, there he was thinking, well, how the hell do I resurrect my kind of career, earn some money? I hope to be in Rishi Sunak's government. I tried to embrace him when he won, but he ignored me. I've got this offer to go into the jungle for 450 grand or whatever it is he's going to get. Um, I'm going to go into the jungle and uh, and hope that people like me. So on his terms is why I said, well done. Uh, I wasn't praising him as a political figure. He needs to be held to account for lots of things that happened uh, during uh, covid and as you know, uh, one of the people who uh, are his biggest critic is Dominic Cummings, who was in, in there watching Hancock perform. And he has many, many questions to answer. But anyway, Brian, I, I've quoted your one. I've got many others all on your side. But I'm on your side. I think he's got to answer for those things. But I was talking about the political and media culture, and it's not a good one where you can revive your image by going into the jungle. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, if someone had asked the sentence, the former cabinet minister can revive his image by spending three weeks in a jungle eating kangaroos' testicles. I mean, people say, oh, he's, he's what drugs is he on? But that's the world we're in at the moment. Anyway, thank you, Brian. Uh, Peter Fanning has written, saying... I see listening to your podcast on Patreon is part of my routine when walking or running. It depends on the observer rather than the runner or walker. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Peter. I did the um, 5K park run on Saturday. Do any of you do the 5K park run? I know some of you do, actually. And, you know, I used to do well under 30 minutes, but halfway through the second lap, it's two laps at Finsbury Park, I was lapped by these runners going like it was a 100 metres um, run. And they were so fast, and they must do it in about 16 minutes, I think. And to be honest, I'll just let you into a secret. I, kinda, I, I found that so depressing. I just stopped and I sod this. Anyway, so, oh, yeah, Peter says, my offering to the co-op is the cooperative, the, our cooperative, is folk music. I helped to set up the Leighton Stone Folk Club as one of my projects and a plug for our Winter Songs concert at St. John's Church Lane, Leighton Stone on Friday the 9th of December. Uh, the doors open at 7 o'clock. Well, there we go. I, I would come, I'd love, it sounds great, actually. Uh, you can get uh, tickets by searching Leighton Stone Folk on wegottickets.com. I'd come along. Sounds great. It's my wife's birthday weekend excursion else i'd come along peter uh, it sounds great anyway good luck with the gig on monday's podcast you observed that in former times the party's big beast stayed around when their party went into opposition whereas today some tory mps appear to be exiting politics before they have even lost an election is this a local event in time or symptomatic of something more lasting and fundamental the triumph of politics as celebrity, perhaps. Yeah, well, I think it probably is lasting. As I reflected briefly last week, when all the heavyweights used to stay on automatically, even if their party was 
heavily defeated in an election. They didn't sort of agonise over whether to do so. Uh, it was automatic. They just they knew there would be one hell of the, a battle, as there will be if the Conservatives lose. There'll be a really interesting battle about how that party revives and whether anyone dares to pose the question, is it time to move on from Thatcherism? A question famously not posed during the summer's leadership contest. And a load will argue, no, no, we've got to stick with her and pay homage to her again. Um, But maybe some big figure might surface to say, well, hold on, Thatcherism was a product of the late 70s, early 90s, uh, early 80s. Does it really apply in the same way now? Uh, You know, and if not, what? Uh, And it'd be an interesting battle. But now they've all buggered off to the jungle or whatever, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think it is worrying that people don't automatically stay on. But that raises other big questions. Should we pay MPs more? Should we stop treating them with total contempt when some deserve it, of course, total contempt, but not all of them? The other key thing to remember is those uh, politicians from the recent past who stayed on to fight the battles. Part of it, I mean, they have big egos, uh, as big as Matt Hancock, uh, and they liked the audiences. And there was a glamorous dimension, but they it was met by huge rallies, big TV set pieces. You know, BBC One used to have Panorama at 10 past eight when these politicians sometimes appeared. Peak time, peak time television, as if they were, you know, kind of one of the star comedians of now. Or like Cliff Richards' Christmas special, they were you know, all, all on that kind of level. So their kind of hunger for the stage and vanity were issues, but by no means the only issues. And they were fed by politics. Now you might get five minutes on Lauren Coombsberg on a Sunday when she, with eight pages of questions, tries to catch you out. And that's about it. But thank you for posing the question. And so have a great gig on Friday. Simon Lockyer, so I've got so many questions about last week's podcast. I'm just kind of reading ones which kind of reflect some of them. And he says, I work on the rail, worked on the railways with 22 years service and have seen huge changes, fewer staff doing more tasks in less time as journey time speeded up. New trains were a plus from privatisation, but they cost way too much. BR, British Rail, would have got so much better value for money. Now, that's interesting. The fragmented system doesn't encourage cooperation between different rail companies, as the fine system dissuades them. Yeah, I mentioned last week, I missed a connection by about three minutes, and they wouldn't wait for loads of people because they would have been fined uh, if they had waited for the three minutes. I mean, it's all bonkers. The fact that there's no overall controller means huge problems when anything goes wrong. No one wants to make a decision in case it proves to be the wrong one, and too many people are involved. Exactly. With fragmentation comes a lack of responsibility. It applies to every institution, which is theoretically a public, uh, publicly funded public service when it's fragmented. I know this from the BBC. Layers of management with no clear lines of responsibility. And uh, decisions are made through fear and trying to preempt the manager above. But it's worse in the railways because it's even more fragmented. So, yeah, I, I know, Simon, I, it, it's clear to me that there has to be a bringing together of the, these fragmented services. 
clear lines of responsibility and accountability in the name of efficiency, not inefficiency. So thank you uh, very much. Uh, Ryan Kemp also uh, joins in this debate, but uh, has a different view. He says, I would add a note of caution to the repeated comparisons of the quality and cost of public services in the UK and Germany. Uh, yeah, so this is what's great about this podcast. Uh, we, we can have a debate based on people's lived experiences across the world and in Europe and so on. Uh, your listener did a remarkable job in getting a cheap ticket from Brussels to Berlin. Buying closer to the time, you would expect to pay around €100 Euros for just going to Cologne to Berlin. And that's standard, not first class. In addition, Deutsche Bahn now has a far worse record on cancellations and delays. It makes trains in the UK look remarkably punctual by contrast, flying in the face of all the stereotypes. Yeah, and they are also suffering from years of underinvestment. Isn't that interesting? Because I was working on the assumption that the German train system was much better than ours. On prices too, the picture is far more complicated. What made and will make a huge difference compared to the UK here, and as in Germany, is the new government-backed scheme to pay so much a month for unlimited travel. €49 per month from January to use any regional bus or train service, though not the fast intercity service. This is an incredible benefit. Well, that's the kind of thing I mean, really, Ryan, that here in the UK, the state, you know, certainly in, in fashionable orthodoxy is seen as something that gets in the way. Here is an example of uh, it being an instrument of liberation. More people will use the trains in Germany with this great deal. Uh, that will get the economy going. Uh, there will be fewer cars on the roads because people will get their tickets and feel somehow a connection with the state in a positive way. And there, there should be far more initiatives like that here. But first of all, we've got to sort out the provision here. But thank you very much for balancing this perception that it's rubbish here and better elsewhere. Obviously, other countries have uh, problems as well. And Mark Pearson uh, uh, writes, I am um, relative newcomer to your superb podcast. Oh, thank you very much, which I listened to on my morning run. Excite I'm, I'm already excited. Uh, you came to the Rope Tackle Show in uh, Shoreham. Thank you. Oh, well, if you came to that, um, I hope you can make it to Brighton uh, for the Christmas show at the Old Market Theatre. On my run this morning, I was sorry to hear of your awful train journey to and from Newcastle. When I got home from my run, I read the French newspaper Liberation as is my habit. Your lifestyle is getting me more excited by the minute, Mark. By coincidence, the main story in today's edition was a story of the announcement by Macron of 10 new regional express networks. However, it seems that things on the, on the French rail network are not as rosy as we may sometimes think. So here's the French view. Uh, we need to hear from uh, our other French correspondent, Dominica, about French trains at some point. But this is from Liberation. The priority to the TGV has led to the abolition of a large number of small regional lines. Many stations are in disrepair. Trains are being cancelled without notice due to lack of drivers or technicians. Tickets are becoming more expensive. And we're not even talking about elements of the French network which are in a calamitous state with crowded trains and buses yeah well that I suppose it's reassuring the sort of sods law 
theory. Thank you for that. Um, so Germany and France also have their problems. But I'll tell you this, it was very interesting. Um, did I mention this at the beginning? That Yeah, I did. Uh, even this morning, you know, with this big press launch at, in Leeds with Starmer and Brown, all the peak time trains, well, a lot of them from uh, London King's Cross cancelled, you know. So I don't know. Uh, the, it seemed, the fragmentation here is a real problem. Now, I have got some fantastic other questions. Um, there's a, a more contributions on trains from Angus Swanson uh, and, and and many others. Uh, you know, there's some great alternative questions as well. Uh, Noah, keep wondering about whether there will be a return to some of the Levison inquiry recommendations under a Keir Starmer government, there's a fascinating thing to be done about Labour and, and the media. Stephen Townsley has written about uh, the House of Commons and uh, the use of... Uh, oh, no, no, that's Sean Farrell. House of Commons, the use of phones by MPs, apparently is banned in the US Congress. Uh, Stephen Townsley um, one calls for a Brexit opportunity special. Uh, it will be pretty short, that one. He wonders what they are apart from the restoration of imperial measures. Yeah worth all the suffering there are podcasts in themselves in all of these and if it's okay with you i'm going to stop now busy week live shows and uh, various other things i know you're all busy and you'll have all done the running and all the rest of it i just want to each week we're going to thank some of those uh, patreon backers i'd like to give them name checks some of them get name checks with brilliant questions actually uh so this week it's thank you to venetia kane andy ellis david smith holly stafford Catherine miles and peter tarrington thank you so much so you'll get your bonus podcast uh this week on the Suez crisis which i think is illuminating and remember that series i'm so so excited about you know the next series starting in january i'll uh mention uh next week so see some of you at the old market theater in brighton if you happen to be listening to this really early via patreon on monday you can live stream the rock and roll politics show at king's place uh with a glass of wine uh, on the monday night and it's also available subsequently for a few days but thank you very much um busy times for all of us uh, no doubt and other issues uh we need to explore in the coming weeks before the year's end and what a year what a year and thank you say so if you could leave a rating do subscribe tell your mates uh we're going to build this cooperative up so it becomes it replaces john lewis basically that's what we're aiming for Thank you so much. Have a brilliant week. See you next time. See some of you in Brighton. Many of you, I hope. And uh, yeah, keep running, baking and all the rest of it. And rocking in the case of some of you this week. Okay, thank you. Bye. 